This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, there can be only one. No, seven. Writing an ensemble cast in speculative fiction. You just had to sneak him in there, didn't you? I did, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's weird. It's like, it's that's not even a favourite film, to be honest, but it's it's such a an iconic, iconic film from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's definitely iconic. Yeah. Um, I, okay, Are you so doubting it's from my childhood. <laughs> no, no, no. That's sorry. I'm not. It's like no, no, no. I mean, Jules actually grew up with the black and white film and was raised on Mastodon meat. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I I just assumed you were as old as Highlander. Anyway, um, <coughs> okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> derail ourselves the minute we get going. Excellent, yes, excellent progress. There. Anyway, so. Um, Basically, uh, ensemble casts are one of uh, mine and Jules's favourite ever things in speculative fiction. Um, obviously, assuming that they're done well. Um, but I will have to say that this episode is entirely on Jules. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and you know, all will become clear a bit later on. But I've been reading an absolute monster tome of a book where. Um, it was it's fantastic fantasy and it it is absolutely an ensemble piece and it's um a day of fall and night by samantha shannon which i've now finished but it was like oh it took me a long time to read as it took me over a week to read yeah um and just to give you guys an idea jules can like rattle out a book in a when I say rattle out a book, it makes it sound like you can write one, which, to be honest, isn't that far off. But um, <laughs> she can sort of get through like a book in an afternoon. Um, she's she's a prolific reader. Yeah, this was like eight, eight to eight nine hundred pages, something like that. Maybe a little more than that, because um, I read a Kindle edition of it, and it's fantastic. But it's this this one. I don't want to give too much away. Um, particularly now but let's just say that there were several viewpoints and each of those viewpoints was incredibly important and none of them were dominant over the others which is what really started me thinking about the whole ensemble thing Mm. um so yes that's kind of where we're going with this i mean we talked a lot about different kinds of main characters uh, heroes villains sidekicks and secondary characters but we've never fully explored why you wouldn't want to limit yourself to just one protagonist so um that's the point of this episode yes okay um so let's get straight into it um and first of all let's just sort of make a quick definition of what is and do a quick definition of what is an ensemble cast So an ensemble cast is a large group of central dynamic characters. Um, Now, when we talk about sort of an ensemble cast, it's basically like when there's more than three, essentially, more than four, you know, three or four. Um, You know, when when it's not just a trio, but starts to get, you know, you start to see lots and lots of different people, that's when you can start to call it an ensemble. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the important point is that each character gets an equal slice of the action and contributes equally to the resolution of the plot through their own unique point of view, um, resulting with a story 
without a clear protagonist, without a single clear, per, you know, single clear leader, if you like. Yeah. Um, but, and I think that's the really important thing, is that, that each of these points of view are equal and unique. They've all got something different to contribute. Yeah. Now, it's important to remember that just because you have a character who is the leader of the group, a la Kaz Brecker, for example, doesn't mean that they are kind of the leader in terms of the whole story. Um, no. So Six of Crows is a great example of this, and obviously we'll go into it a little bit later on, but you you have some very clear dynamics within the group, but each of the character has their own driven story. Yes, definitely. Um, now, generally these stories are written in either limited or omniscient third person. Um, it's because it's quite hard to write ensemble casts in first person because you need to juggle four or more voices that instantly sound different. However, it's not impossible, and when it is done right, it can be extremely effective. Yeah, um, and I think a good example for me there is Spinning Silver by Naomi Novak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely agree. Now, in that particular case, um, it it is, well, the, you have obviously three main points of view, but it's not just those three because you actually do get some other points of view throughout as well. Um, and it's particularly interesting because when we think of ensemble casts, we tend to think of everyone all together all at once. And that's not always the case. And Spinning Silver, I think, just manages to do it very, very cleverly in terms of having you know, lots of distinct stories, but all of them mingle together to create one larger plot, one greater plot. Yeah, and all of them told in first person as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so what's the difference between an ensemble cast and a large cast? So, with an ensemble cast, the weighting of the story resolution is equal across four or more characters, as we said. Um, if anyone fails, then everybody fails because it's everybody's everyone's contribution is is essential. Basically, um, all the characters are dynamic; they each bring something important to the table. So, for example, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy mm -hmm. is uh, you know you've got several. In fact, I'm trying to just trying to think off the top of my head just how many point of views you've got and, and the, many. There's definitely more than four. <laughs> many. There are many. There are more than four, um, and. Every single one of those those points of view, yes, they're in sort of an omniscient third person, um, but they're all essential to the overall goal of destroying the One Ring and um, defeating Sauron. So, yeah, that's a that's a pretty good example. Yeah. <laughs> um, in contrast, um, a large cast is generally built around three or fewer character point of views who cement the story as protagonists. So while there are other characters who are present and contribute, they tend to be secondary characters rather than people who would actively change the entire course of the story. The story is about the protagonists. Um, now again, obviously any well-written book will have very well-rounded secondary characters and secondary characters who do sort of provide something larger for the plot but there is a kind of a distinct difference in in sort of where the story circles um and who we're concentrating on so for example something like v for vendetta yeah um 
which I have to admit I'm a little bit rusty on now. But yeah, you get you get a couple of different points of view with the vendetta. Mm. Um, but really, we're only looking at two people who are essentially the the main characters for that yeah. particular story. Particularly if we're looking at the graphic novel. Yeah. Um, and also Harry Potter again. You you're looking at three main protagonists there, with one very much the lead protagonist who is basically the point of view character for the entire series. Yeah, and then of course you've got lots and lots of side characters. Yeah. Now there is a sliding scale here, but generally, if you have a lot of characters who equally share the story pie, then it's an ensemble. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if some characters get a bigger slice of the action, it's just a large cast. Um, so a really, really good uh, Game of Thrones series, you know, The Song of Ice and Fire, um, that is an ensemble. Um, even though they're not all aiming towards the same thing, all of their actions tend to sort of have an effect on other people, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I mean, you could even argue that uh, Song of Ice and Fire is both an ensemble and a large cast. It is. So it's sort of a secondary large cast, particularly since he keeps just growing new points of view and killing off old ones. I know, um, which is actually, at, at a certain point, it just gets to be a bit too much. It's um, exhausting. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it, it's also like Star Trek is is supposed to be a an ensemble piece. Which is why the best sort of sort of Star Trek movies, best Star Trek sort of episodes, tend or, or seasons tend to centre around it being an ensemble piece rather than just a large cast. Yeah, definitely. Okay, um, so why might you actually want to write an ensemble cast? Is the big question. Um, and the first, I think, most obvious one is you get a greater scope. An ensemble lets you explore story and world building from multiple engaging perspectives and even different locations. Yeah, so it's like Madeline was saying um, about Spinning Silver, mm. whereby you have at least three distinct stories that are happening in different parts of that same plot. Yeah. Um, and they all influence each. In fact, there's another two points of view as well which also then bring to bear some influence on the overall plot um, but you know several of those characters don't even know about each other initially not until sort of two-thirds of the way through the story so yeah you get to look at a lot of the world just through having so many points of view yeah absolutely um and the thing that is really engaging there is that you are seeing not just different sort of locations but also different sort of status different positions different lives like sort of social locations as it were because you go you know from a, a sort of a young jewish woman um to a young sort of servant to a noble woman um to a nanny you know and and you know you see different ages you see different perspectives um, different genders um, and it, it just means that you are never at one point confined to only one point of view which also creates a great sense of sort of intimacy because it is all first person as we've said before um, and understanding of the characters because you can see what they're going through with a greater sense of the 
external picture, the whole picture. So it creates this fantastic dynamic where, and it's the same with Game of Thrones, where you're sort of like, oh, I like both of you character, both of these characters, but they're kind of on opposing sides here. Um, yeah. Or they've actually clashed um, when actually really they should be working together. And it just makes something, it, it helps build tension, atmosphere, and it, it's just really engaging that way. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you've got, basically, if you've got the two characters who can't see that they're essentially aiming for the same outcome, but yeah. they're going about it in such different ways that they are going to be at loggerheads. Yeah, it's, um, it's, I it's, especially enjoy that. <laughs> it's good omens as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's the privileged position of the reader, and you're like, you guys should all be on the same side. You shouldn't be, <laughs> you shouldn't be fighting. Um, yeah, so Good Omens is another good example. So, yeah, being able to tap into multiple points of view allows you to explore theme, character arcs and plot in greater depth and from multiple angles. Um, Madeline mentioned Star Trek. I mean, if we look at something like Star Trek Generations or Deep Space Nine especially, mm -hmm. um, because you've got so many races and species, um, some of which have traditionally been at war with each other for 100 years or more, Yeah. Um, I'm thinking especially of deep space nine at the moment where you've got the the kardashians and um, the bajorans who you know the kardashians have just stopped occupying bajor bajor's trying to recover from what is essentially colonialism yeah um the kardashians have retreated both parties kind of want entry into the federation and the federation's cast in this light of being a mediator so that's just the backdrop of that yeah, and it's a space station right by this wormhole, which is a valuable resource. And then within all of that, you've got all these really great, well-rounded individual characters who all have their own goals and aspirations and character arcs. Um, you've got Benjamin Sisko, who's you know trying to recover from the death of his wife. Yeah, um, which is complicated by who was technically responsible for that, even though it wasn't really that person's fault. Mm -hmm. um, you have his son, who's obviously got a different perspective on just that problem. Yeah. You've got people like Quark, who's trying to make, who's trying to make Latinum no matter what. <laughs> Doesn't really want to take sides. He's the absolute he's sort of like, yeah, I'm neutral as long as there's money involved, and yet he does have a moral compass, um, and a whole bunch of other people as well. So, it's it just gives you this whole big world and. It does not just limit you to saying, well, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. It allows you to explore all those shades of grey in between. And yeah, you can have bad Bajorans and good Kardashians, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's particularly important um, when you are thinking about theme and stuff like that, because multiple perspectives and multiple points of view can really really help you enhance certain themes depending on what you're writing and what you're trying to achieve with that yeah. um, so having that just makes it engaging it's also very engaging um, to have multiple points of view and characters and stuff like that and you know be able to have this greater sense of plot if you are working on a series rather than you know, a single kind of short story which has a very clear beginning, middle and end. When you have more of that sense of, okay, well, we're starting to see a little bit more, even if we don't actually see a lot of things from someone else's, you know, point of view, but where they're still very much have their own story, they're still very much part of it as an ensemble piece. Um, 
it allows you to kind of well it gives you more material essentially it means that you're not treading over the same ground over and over again you're not going to bore your reader um, and it gives you time to kind of build things up in other ways yeah definitely so an ensemble cast gives you greater storytelling flexibility yeah. you can step away from a character or even kill one off without ending the story <laughs> thank you georgia R. Martin. in fact thank you robin jarvis thinking about it yeah it's far more devastating than georgia r martin in my opinion um yeah you don't need to worry about transporting your main character i can't emphasize how important that is yeah um generally unless the point of the story is the journey like lord of the rings for example um you're almost always better skipping the journey portions of something unless something really important happens along the way yeah but then people have the issue of well they've got They've got their, their little chosen one boy meets sword type character mm-hmm. and somehow they've got to get him into the high chamber with the chancellor and the king so he can overhear an important conversation that he would never be privy to. Psychic, psychic dreams. <laughs> and it's like you can do things to make it work, as Madeline says, psychic dreams, or you 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 can just go... Or maybe I'll have a point of view who's a lot closer to the king who will eventually meet this boy and deliver the important information. <laughs> yeah. It, it it was one of those things that when I was writing book two of the Hamartia cycle, I was like, I need to show what's happening in Hamartia. Who who's how can I show what's happening in Hamartia? And I was like, Zachary <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And you know, as long as that character then has an agenda character arc and is part of the story Mm. gets a big a decent share of the story and resolving the plot etc then then you've got yourself part of an ensemble there yeah exactly it's very unsatisfying if that character is just just a mouthpiece yeah just a mouthpiece or an audience member themselves yeah no one's going to engage with that i remember a journey can be internal as well as external um You also, they can be useful because a single character just doesn't need to carry the weight of the whole plot that way. Um, You know, this is a big deal in book series, as we mentioned before, where you need to see, you know, a character's growth um, without character assassination. Um, (laughs) And even the best planned overreaching series plot can start to creak if you're not careful. Now in TV and film, a huge plot built around a single character will then depend on the actor's ability to shoulder that weight. Um, And when an actor isn't up to it, or a character isn't built well enough, a series will flop or at least start to sag, particularly if you've kind of built up this whole sort of character arc for them and then they came to the end of that character arc and you don't, haven't really sort of left anywhere for them to go or consider or 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 basically considered all right well what's next for them yeah um i'm not saying supernatural but i am saying supernatural (laughs) um it's also happened with several dc universe films i think i think i mean there are some good dc films Mm. um and i know that some people just love the uh dawn of i want to say it's not is it I'm not sure it is Dawn of Justice, but I always think of it as Superman versus Batman. Yeah. Um, and what they love about that is they want to see Superman and Batman have a fight. And if all that's what, you, if that's all you want out of that film, then yeah. 
that's fine that film delivers that for you but in terms of showing me a part of that world and making me engage in it in a way that say the the marvel films do Hmm. it completely fails for me i actually find that film quite boring yeah yeah it's and actually i think dc sort of really helps prove the point in that i remember when it came to sort of like the dc cartoons like with batman and stuff like that i never really got into batman i never really got into superman but i loved justice league because it was an ensemble piece and i didn't i wasn't ever really fond of batman or superman on their own but i like watching batman when there's he's also got the others around him like you know robin and nightwing and and alfred and stuff like that when it's more of an ensemble piece because actually the characters together are much more interesting than on their own it's you know it's like a salad the more stuff you add to it the more interesting it is though of course if you add too much it stops being interesting and starts tasting weird so yes yeah. and you've got it's got to still be a salad it's, ingredient yeah still got to be really. a salad you can't just put skittles or what have you in there. <laughs> or you shouldn't really sorry that i went very random there um yeah uh, if we're talking superheroes or sort of you know a dark turn on the superhero sort of uh, mythos um watchmen as well mm. whereby it's very definitely an ensemble piece and every single one of those characters gets a proper slice of story pie and you wouldn't resolve the entire story which is answering the question of who actually who watches the watchman who gets to decide who who has this power yeah um and whether they deserve it or whether we ought to be trying to do maybe the human race would be better off without basically these living greek gods amongst them um and it's it's really interesting i think again it gives you a much more balanced perspective um if you're looking for a classic superhero film that is not the classic superhero film or or graphic novel in fact yeah (laughs) Um, but it it does address some really interesting points i think yeah so i mean just some good examples of where we think obviously we've mentioned a few already of of sort of strong ensemble pieces which have managed to kind of achieve all of these um i said six of crow uh six of crows earlier um i stand by that <laughs> yeah i i mean i i would absolutely say six of crows um particularly if we're talking the books yeah because you do literally have those six points of view each one of them is important they're not going to solve this massive heist issue without every single point of view without every single one of them pulling their own weight and they've all got different agendas they don't start off as friends at the beginning either they're just kind of thrown together because of this this mission (laughs) some Um, of them would say they don't finish as friends either but uh... (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's great it's an incredibly satisfying overall story because of this this ensemble that you get Mm -hmm. um and it's i i actually don't want to diss the 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 original grisha sorry trilogy um, because at its time it was doing exactly what it was meant to do and I remember when it first came out I enjoyed it mm-hmm. I still haven't read the final book I ought to do that at some point just so I've completed it but going back to that after reading Six of Crows I did find it quite thin um, even though it's still set in that universe etc um, it overall I think Six of Crows and its sequel are just generally better that they're a better more satisfying story because she's gone for an ensemble cast yeah and you definitely also see that reflected in the in the series that has have followed um 
King of Scars and Rule of Wolves, um, there's definitely a greater sense of this is an ensemble cast and the balance is wonderful. Yeah. Um, but here we are singing praises about all of this. Um, there are, of course, some drawbacks to an ensemble cast. So let's let's get into that a little bit. Um, and I'm going to start with one of the most obvious ones, which is that it's actually very difficult. Um, Jules and I would never tell a newbie writer not to do it, but if someone asked us whether they should do a single protagonist or an ensemble for their first book, we would probably advise they start with one main character. Um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to keep track of if you do more. Now, again, that's not to say, well, you can't do it, or that if you do it, you'll fail. Um, that's not it at all. But it's a little bit like saying, well, I, you know, I'm going to start learning to juggle. Um, should I start with one chainsaw or five? Um, at which point you might go, well, you could be a natural juggler and perhaps you can immediately handle five chainsaws without any kind of throwback. Um, but if it is your first go, um, in order not to kind of also scare yourself off, you might want to start with one. <laughs> or, you know, two balls, maybe. <laughs> Why start with chainsaws? We can work out. Leave yourself somewhere to go. <laughs> um, and again, you can say, well, the Grisha trilogy, and which has a, a relatively large cast, and then moving up to Six of Crows seems to be exactly what Ali Bardugo actually did yeah. in that instance. Um, yeah, there's also potentially too many threads. So an ensemble cast can quickly overwhelm you if you're not careful. You might get stuck and just not be able to finish the story, which is not good. Mm -hmm. um, or you might finish and not be able to edit it into any sort of semblance of sense, which is even worse. Very frustrating. Yeah. Um, because that literally, if you cannot edit it into sense, that means you need to go back to the beginning and start again kind of thing. Yeah. Um, none of us really enjoy that particular moment when we realise we've just got to start again. Yeah. Essentially, you um, just end up with too many moving parts. Yeah. Or you might have a confused mess at the very end, even if you do manage to edit it and it, you know, if that goes to print or what have you, you're probably going to lose your reader. Yeah. Um, and everyone is going to have, you know, different sort of mileage on that. Um, some would say that actually, uh, you know, people can just also do it, you know, and have still get published and stuff like that. And some readers are just not going to be able to follow it. George R. Martin, again, I think is sort of coming to that where there are so many moving parts and he has you know assembled them very very carefully but at the same time it's actually become too much for the reader even on occasions where it's been really properly edited really properly sort of looked through i mean he, he is obviously very big on his world building it's it's just too much other people would say something similar of the Lord of the Rings, particularly if they try and get into the lore, where they'd be like, there's there's too much stuff here for me to remember. There's too many characters. There's too, you know, there's too many storylines happening at once. Um, and other people will say, what are you talking about? It's absolutely fine. I completely understand the pattern. So, you know, even before you get to the you not being able to cope with it, there's the fact that even if you did it right, your readers might not be able to cope with it. Um, and there's going to be varying degrees of what people can and can't go with. Yeah. 
Um, there's also the instance that some writers create an ensemble because they don't know who the main character should be. Um, and that's just not a good reason in storytelling terms. As a writer, you need to make conscious decisions about your story. There's nothing wrong with writing in a discovery, sort of pantser type fashion, where you just throw words at the page and you just keep going. That's fine. That's That can be a great way to write, especially if it's like your first book. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that's just your natural writing style. But at some point between you writing the book and the book getting put in front of readers, you need to have made conscious decisions about your story. You can't just throw it all at a page and then throw it out into the world and expect it to be a roaring success because very few people can do that. Yeah. You know, if you go out of an, if you go for an ensemble um, cast out of indecision, the story is just going to feel weak. Yeah. Um, the on- ensemble casts demand a lot from readers as well, you know, as I've just said. Um, so even the best on examples can turn readers away because there's too much work. Um, so, you know, if even if you do decide you are going to do an ensemble, you, you really need to do it with purpose and with intention. Because if you're unsure about that, even a little bit, that is going to be one more barrier between you and your readers. Yeah, um, in... It's, it's absolutely fine if your work isn't for everyone, obviously. Um, yeah. I recently read The Justice of Kings by Jen Lyons. I'd been meaning to read this book for ages. It's five books in a series. Um, it's got some really interesting world building. It's got an interesting commentary on quite a lot of social type stuff and on slavery and on various other things. And it's not an ensemble piece exactly, but it feels like an ensemble piece because even though it's told... It's told by one character both in the present and the past and another character as well on top of that. And then just to confuse things further, all the characters are sometimes not the people that they're supposed to be because there's a lot of body swapping and possession and stuff. (laughs) And then on top of that, every single character has about three names. Oh, okay. (laughs) So no doubt this is a brilliant piece of fantasy. Many people have loved it. I didn't have trouble following it, but by the end of the story, I was kind of like, the story has been swamped by all this detail that you've thrown on top of it. And I've heard other people say, this series really hits its stride on book three. And I'm like, I don't want to read book two if it does the same thing there. There are other things I could be reading. Um, You know, my time is precious. I get through books very quickly, but it's still a case of my time is precious and I would like to be enjoying the book as I'm reading it. Yeah. And I got two thirds of the way through this and I'm like, I'm not really enjoying this. I don't really care what happens to these characters now. I've not been given a chance to really engage with any of them. And and then on top of that, the overall plot just wasn't really for me. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm going to continue with that series, but it wasn't an ensemble cast, but it's that sort of thing that can go wrong with an ensemble cast, if you see what I mean. I, I see exactly what you mean. Um, and it, again, it, it shows a little bit of a different mileage. I kind of almost need to become friends with my... when I'm reading a book. I need to be able to... Uh, I say friends. <laughs> like, some of these people I wouldn't actually want to hang out with. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to sort of form a relationship with them. And it was one of the big sort of issues that came in with reading um, A Song of Ice and Fire was that I devoured the first few books. I really, really did. Yeah. And then I just lost interest because, yes, we were getting a lot of, you know, interesting perspectives and stuff like that, but it all got far too big 
there were too many things that I was trying to juggle and I was no longer kind of connecting with these new characters because first of all I didn't trust that they weren't just going to immediately die um, but also like I, I had already invested so much time and energy into other people's storylines that at this point like I didn't have time for this new one yeah I had the same trouble with Song of Ice and F- I've still not got past I think book four I've never read A Dance with Dragons I keep meaning to and then I'll, I'll go to it and I'll be like nah I don't feel like that yet yeah. I have the same problem with The Wheel of Time I have the same problem with The Sword of Truth at a certain point you I don't know it, what gives it away for me is when I hit a different character perspective and I think oh god not this guy again yeah and at that point it's like yeah this isn't fun anymore this is if i start wanting to skim read through certain perspectives then this is not for me a good ensemble piece anymore yeah although it might be for someone else let's actually look at the different kinds of ensemble casts that you can actually have in fiction um we're going to sort of concentrate on on four types uh, and we're going to start with the uh, the mystery mobile, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is a group of friends or allies who are on some kind of mission. They each have something to add to the story and each of them get a point of view, but they usually stick together and they focus on a single goal. So they might have sort of individual sort of like personal goals and things like that once and um, sort of journeys but they're all kind of they're together they're working as one um, as a group as a team uh, basically this is an ensemble starter pack where you don't have to juggle a lot of you know different locations and things like that but you can at least sort of have different points of view and you can have you know them each in in slightly different locations just not on the other sides of the world yeah they generally know about each other yeah, um, excellent example of this, as suggested in the name, uh, Scooby-Doo. Um, and yeah, you wouldn't really think of it as an ensemble piece, and yet it is, because super, every single one of the Scooby-Doo team has something they bring that is unique to them, <laughs> yep. to the table, and they all have a part in solving the mystery of the week. I mean, in fairness, I haven't watched any recent Scooby-Doo, but the Scooby-Doo I remember was definitely like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> um, and also, again, with Star Trek, The Next Generation. Uh, though that varies a little bit (laughs) yeah it depends where they are but generally speaking you do have the crew working towards a common goal together and it might be in someone's it might be in Picard's perspective one week and Crusher's perspective another yeah um but you know it it, that is kind of generally the thing yeah um you can even to a certain extent put six of crows in with that one because they're not always in the same location but once they they've done their team up a bit they're kind of working towards this goal even if they've got their own personal yeah it's i mean to be honest that the the it also works with you you know the heist group you've got to form a team together to create a you know a heist group or something like that not gonna lie i'm a bit of a i love that i love it too much (laughs) i mean it's like oceans 11 is an utterly ridiculous story and all the all the subsequent ones it is ridiculous, but we love it because there's this bunch of people with disparate skills all coming together and they bring something they bring something to the table. Yeah. So yeah, I'm an absolute sucker for that too. Okay, we, we also have the web where 
basically you've got multiple but connected characters in standalone stories eventually coming together to face off against the biggest threat yeah um, in their own stories they are generally the protagonist they'll lead the story uh, but for this huge team up they share the spotlight so for example the infinity war type films are perfect yeah. examples of this yeah. I mean, the, the the MCU is absolutely huge. I don't think anyone ever dreamed that we would have this many Marvel superhero films, and that they would interconnect in this way, and people would turn up in team ups and that. And it and it's been great, yeah. generally. Yeah, it's, and on smaller scales, you see it the same with thing with like the Defenders. So obviously, you get it with the Avengers. You get it with the Defenders. Um, yeah. to varying degrees of success <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah the, these kind of these characters sort of interweave with one another they appear in shows they appear in sort of movies and, and stuff like that um, and again like we said there's there's some, been some great successes and there have also been times where it's fallen flat because it's not actually been properly formulated as a proper ensemble piece yeah Okay, um, the next one is the multiple power lines. Um, now, this is when there is a large group of characters, amongst which are glue characters. So these glue characters act basically as anchors around which multiple plot lines may be based. Each plot line features its own events and character arcs, complete with multiple points of view, but they all converge on a central core conflict. And by the end, a single cohesive story has resolved all of these threats. So a perfect example of this is obviously Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely say that uh, Aragorn is a glue character and Frodo is a glue character. And at certain points in the story, Gandalf is a glue character and then he's not again. Yeah. It can vary. Yeah. Um, it, it's usually uh, Pippin, isn't it? It's Pippin with the chaos whirling around him. <laughs> yeah. and stumbles into yet another thing. Yeah. That goes horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, where, yeah, it's essentially you've kind of almost got these kind of splinter cell groups. They're all kind of going towards the same thing, but they're all actually in completely different locations. Um, and, you know, you've, you've got these kind of point of view characters who are sort of within that group and sort of saying what's happening in that. What's happening over here? <laughs> Meanwhile, in Gondor. Um, <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I've also heard people mention Avatar The Last Airbender as a good example of this particular type of yes um but i don't know enough about it to really comment so. yes and i think that yes you could say that because certainly um you have this kind of you do have the multiple storylines in terms of seeing what's happening with you know ang and and his group and then with zuko and his uncle and stuff like that to be honest it's mostly those two threads but you but you do actually get more as sort of more characters are kind of introduced including seeing what's happening with Zuko's sister and her friends and things like that um, where yeah you do have these kind of characters who are sort of central within that particular location with that particular group um, and sometimes they're against one another sometimes they're for one another um, but ultimately they all converge to a single point um, 
and it is done very successfully uh, because you do feel very much as if every character does have a distinct story, a distinct growth, um, and it doesn't sort of go haywire. You can all see them heading towards the same direction, even if sometimes it looks like they're moving in opposite directions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and our final um, classification, if you like, is the thematic class cast. Oh god, the thematic cast. The thematic class. The thematic class. Mowage. Anyway, this is the most dispersed of all the ensembles. This type of cast features a series of dynamic characters with only a fragile link tying them together. These characters are often entirely di in entirely different places or time periods. That's a really interesting one. Different time periods. Um, <laughs> And they may never even meet. They might even die before the rest of the cast is born. What ties them together is a central theme. Each member of the thema thematic cast shares some central goal, theme or purpose, pulling their stories together into one cohesive narrative. So um, again, we can talk about A Song of Ice and Fire, where you've got characters who are really essential to the story, at mm -hmm. least at the very start, and who basically set it off in motion in the way it's supposed to go yeah. and then they die and then the characters who end up resolving it have never met this person <laughs> or you know they have not seen them for a very long time um i think there's probably other examples of this one as well generally if you get something huge um and encompassing in sort of sci-fi or fantasy it's a thematic cast type thing um and certainly samantha shannon's a dareful knight and the prior of the orange tree are also good examples of this yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we use Game of Thrones. It doesn't always have to be a humongous cast in the same no. way. Uh, but you can kind of have this multi-generational thing or even just to, you know, people who live in different times, but who ultimately are all kind of linked by something. And it's usually a series of events, essentially, that one person has set off, which has repercussions that affect all of them, even if they don't actually necessarily know, oh, well, that person was just killed because 60 years ago, uh, someone gave someone else a flower. Um, but that is essentially what happens in Game of Thrones. Um, no, literally. <laughs> That's what happens in Game of Thrones. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot of um, historical saga type stuff does have kind of a thematic cast, but depending on how the writer decides to handle historical events, yeah, um, it it lends itself to it really well because you've got you've already got the backstory written for you. These historical events, yeah. Um, so anyone who is writing about, I don't know, say Tudor court, for example, has probably tapped into this type of cast, yeah. Um, and it's or, the same if you're adapting any anything like any of the Greek tragedies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, or, you know, if we ever had anything where someone was adapting the Irish sagas or anything like that, or, or sagas, it would be kind of like, yeah. Yeah, the, the reason this character's being punished now was because six generations ago, this person did this to that person's father, yep. or whatever. So, yeah. Okay, so... Very briefly, from a writer's perspective, let's just kind of have a quick look through some common problems when writing ensemble casts. And when we're talking about common problems, we're talking about the things that you might come up against um, that you'll need to think about. So uh, the first is 
no planning. You need to plan. If you're writing an ensemble cast more than anything else, there needs to be a plan. Now, if you are a pantser writer, and that's okay, um, you know, you might sort of start formulating a plan as you go, but then you've got to be ready to do some heavy editing and make sure that it all kind of works together. So you can have a plan at the end, but you will need to have a plan of some kind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we say things like you must plan, we're not trying to be controversial or say there's only one way of writing. We're just saying at some point in your process, there will be planning. You might not like planning, but there will be planning if you want this to work. Yeah, and planning can take lots of different forms. You yeah. know, it's not necessarily sitting down and eking out everything together. It can be, okay, well, here's what I've got. Right, how am I going to approach this so that I can untangle it? That's fine. That is also a form of planning, but you do need to consider it. Definitely. Um, another problem, not one that writers nearly n normally hear, I should think, is your story is too short. Now, if you're writing a 40,000 word novella, for example, mm -hmm. you probably don't need an ensemble cast. You are not going to have enough words to get that in and do it justice. Yeah. To be honest, if you write something that's 100,000 words, there's a good chance that's going to be too short as well if you're looking at sci-fi or fantasy because you have to think about the scope of the world building. Yeah. So you need enough story and you need enough plot to support this ensemble cast. Yep. Be ready. Because if you don't do it properly, then it's not going to work successfully as an ensemble cast. No. Um, the next is that the genre just doesn't suit it. Now, genre is, remember, just a categorising system based on this book has this sort of motif, these kinds of structures, etc. But if you are trying to write within a certain genre, um, you may find that it kind of butts up against um, having ensemble casts. That doesn't mean it's impossible, but it does. it is a little bit harder um, and it is worth considering why are you writing in this genre? What are you trying to achieve with it? For example, if you were writing a contemporary romance, mm -hmm. chances are an ensemble cast is not going to do you any favours. You want the your romance story to focus on basically two characters, your your um your couple who are going to overcome trouble and get together. And but, an ensemble cast would just distract from that. Exactly. But of course there are always exceptions to the rules like something like Love Actually, which Love or Hate It was very successful during the period and it and is an ensemble piece. Yeah, but I would also say it's not a straightforward contemporary romance. No, it certainly isn't. Um, okay, so the another okay on the opposite end of the scale, your cast is too big. <laughs> Mentioning no names, Mr. Martin. <laughs> um, no, sometimes you can, and to be fair, Stephen King, Stephen King with the stand, uh, actually, little Stephen King story, <laughs> and he admits this himself. Um, it's widely acknowledged by a lot of Stephen King fans that The Stand is his, is his best work. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but it's certainly one of my favourite books. And it has an absolutely huge cast. And at certain points, there are so many different points of view, which are equally engaging and equally important to solving the overall... The, I mean, it's more of a thematic cast, definitely. The thematic ensemble cast. Um, and they're all important at the end of it. But he said when he was writing it, oh god, I've got too many people, I've got to kill some of them off, but I've got to make it convincing. Mm -hmm. So part way through the book, it's kind of like the midpoint, 
he has a bomb planted and it kills off a bunch of people. <laughs> and then he said, and I kept going and a few more points of view added themselves. And then I got to the end of the book and I was like, oh God, I've got to kill a whole bunch of people. And he's like, he had another explosion, this time an atomic one. Um, lots of people complain that he didn't end the book well or that he can't end a book. I disagree. I think he chooses the ending that suits him. Sometimes <laughs> I like it. Sometimes I don't like it, but it is actually always an ending. Um, but he, he'll he say it himself, you know, like I was writing the stand back in the 1970s and uh, guess what? I got carried away. He's very much a pantser writer. He doesn't like to plan in advance. Yeah. And he's one of those rare people who can literally draw the entire outline of the snowflake in one go. Um, it's very, very unusual. Um, but yeah even he was saying yeah i was cheating by just having these two big explosions in the book because i had too many people i i i feel you <laughs> <laughs> um the next is head hopping which really annoys me yeah i've seen it done where it can be followed like have you ever read lonesome dove which is like kind of a grand saga western and it's really interesting, but I mean, I think in the first chapter, the narrative perspective head hops six times, I think I counted. Yeah. Um, Which makes it a really hard book to get into. Yeah, I, I can't be dealing with it. Um, it's one of also the other reasons that I will kind of squint a little bit too much at... Because obviously there's different types of, you know, third-person perspective, and you can have an omniscient narrator, you can have a close... Uh, third person. Uh, a close third person is where you really, you know, it's third person but you are focusing on one person you can only really hear their thoughts and stuff like that. And it is the most popular um, form but every now and again you can have one where it's actually, you kind of, you do jump and you hear a little bit of what someone else is thinking it's like a, at that moment so and so was thinking this. Contrary to them so and so was thinking this and it can work um, but it, it can also feel very alienating if it's not done properly um, and it can actually create this distance between you and the the characters because you don't actually feel like you're making a connection with them um, you sort of just feel like you're being told stuff about them yeah, I mean, I have to say, when I've seen it work, the writer has been an absolute master of um, going from, I don't know if people are going to understand what I say when I say psychic distance, but going from a very, very broad, if we say psychic distance, one is kind of like your um, your wide shot if you're on a film, yeah. where you're looking at the scene, the mountains, the house, etc. Yeah. And then Psychic Distance 5 is like right inside somebody's subliminal thoughts and you're just getting stream of consciousness. Yeah. They're, they're masters at going from one end of the scale to another in a way that takes the reader with them. Yeah. Um, and weirdly enough, comedy writers seem to do quite well at that. So you've got Douglas Adams doing it in Hitchhiker's Guide and strangely, it kind of works there. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it comedy i think does work but it works in particular because of the narrative style whereby yeah. the narrator themselves even though you don't necessarily have a narrator character is almost kind of like a character um yes. you know you get that with terry pratchett as well for example yeah, uh, where it's just 
you feel like you are being t- you formed a relationship not just with the characters but with the person who's telling you the story even if they don't themselves have kind of a name and of course there are examples where they do have a name they the narrator literally is a character uh, the book thief is an excellent example of that where he can have these big wider bigger sort of shots of saying this is what's happening on a grand scale and this is what's happening with this one little girl in this basement yeah yeah absolutely um another problem your cast is homogenous basically if you have ever let's say you have six characters and they each get their own pov and then none of them unique and each one of them ultimately sounds like you because they are basically all you wearing slightly different masks um you haven't differentiated your characters enough and at that point, that's not an ensemble piece. That's just you occasionally being a different person in, in each point of view, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and it, this is something which also will rise up against new time writers. Um, and that's fairly natural. It's one of the other reasons you should be careful about doing an ensemble piece um, is because as you're developing your writing skills and stuff like that, particularly if you're relatively young or relatively new to writing, um, creating new and unique rounded characters um, is actually kind of hard and it does take practice to really kind of get it right. Yeah. Um, so Yeah, definitely. And it's just uh, all the more apparent <laughs> if you're only seeing it from their point of view. <laughs> it is. I mean, obviously with both Unveiled and Harker and Blackthorn, I've written in the first person and I've generally got one person. You've got M in the first series and you've got Amy in the second series and um, then I go off and do little side quests because little side quests keep me sane so you also (laughs) get first person perspectives from um, Grace and Amy and Kieran and uh, Lucas and various other people with Unveiled and a whole bunch of people (laughs) and and more to come I promise you with Harker and Blackthorn. Um, I wouldn't argue that any of them are ensemble pieces. Uh, They've got strong secondary characters who are important to the overall plot, Mm -hmm. but they're not ensembles. But it has taught me quite a lot about writing ensemble pieces, and that is if I'm going to write in first person and change the perspective, I also need to change how I think because that character thinks differently. And Amy will not approach things the same way that M would. No. And Kieran won't approach things the way Lucas would, for example. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Steve's perspective on something that's happened is very, very different to, say, Amy or Rebecca's. So, yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. Maybe a good halfway house is if you want to write something that's an ensemble piece, eventually start off with something that has a single point of view and then maybe write a few scenes from another character's perspective and try and think how that character feels in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. The next is lack of balance. And this is a really, really difficult one um, whereby you are sort of, how much time do you dedicate to each character? And if you're finding that, you know, everyone's getting a slice of pie, but I mean, one person's really getting like half of the pie, then Then maybe it shouldn't be an ensemble piece. Yeah. Um, But that being said, it it will vary. Because sometimes actually, even if you are dedicating half to one character, it might be because, well, um, actually, they're the only person who can give us this particular point of view from this location and therefore we actually need it because the others 
are actually all together in an, in another location, as it were. Um, but it will vary, and you've kind of got to be honest with yourself about it and say, actually, is this meant to be, you know, a, a story about this person with, you know, very strong secondary characters, or is it actually meant to be an ensemble cast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's also the final big one is you lost your focus. So this is <laughs> this is where you set out with your ensemble cast, you're on your quest or whatever, and you don't really get anywhere <laughs> yeah. because you, you've got lost somewhere along the way, and so have they, consequently. <laughs> it's the odyssey of... Uh... <laughs> it's the odyssey, but you never really left the harbour in the first place. <laughs> All the best intentions. Um yeah um and again this can happen it can happen to writers who have all the practice in the world um because essentially you've now got too many people on the ship um and the ship is sinking where (laughs) where are you going with it you don't know everyone wants to go in different directions um do you need to have them all there what's the actual story that you are trying to tell ultimately because at the end of the day that is the one thing you cannot betray. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should probably wrap it up by just sort of mentioning some of our favourite ensembles. Yeah, we've obviously tried to give you examples all the way through, but there's a couple here definitely that I want to mention because I didn't get to mention them during um, Firefly. Firefly is a great example of an ensemble cast Mm -hmm. um it it is still a crying shame that only really got one season uh just because it's such a perfectly balanced group of misfits that all bring something to the story Mm. and it kind of solves the first officer problem because you've got mal who is the captain so theoretically he should be the leader of the entire cast yeah um and but his first officer Zoe is very different from him. She's not just a stand-in Mal, and she's actually a better fighter. So he never really overshadows her. Yeah. And she doesn't agree with him all the time either. So when he's off doing Mal stuff, which is quite often very stupid stuff, <laughs> um, Zoe is usually the person in charge, making cool, calm, rational decisions, and saving people's butts. Um, but she's also not afraid to mix it up and then you've got a a bunch of other people as well you've got jane who's essentially the muscle but he's also kind of a thug so Mm. he needs limiting factors as well um kaylee is the mechanic and it's just a really interesting group of characters i don't think there's any character there that you you might not like some of them but you you wouldn't look at them and say yeah that's a weak character they don't deserve any story yeah absolutely um I think another good example, and I'm actually going to to sort of look at animations at the moment. So I've been watching season two of Vox Machina, uh, which is on Amazon Prime. Um, Obviously, it's based on the Critical Role D&D campaigns, uh, which which makes for perfect stuff because, yeah, it's individual players and stuff like that who are all kind of working... in one cohesive storyline but each do have their own thing and it works perfectly as an ensemble uh, group in that each of the characters do have their own strengths something that they bring and they are put in situations whereby not one of them alone can resolve it um, or rather that 
actually one of them can resolve one tiny situation, but that is just one piece of a larger puzzle. Um, and I actually feel that they've balanced it very well in season two. Season one, um, there was a fair bit of kind of concentration on the Briarwood saga, which was very much Percy's story, though we still got very much a, you know, a sense of each of the characters. But season two, we've had a brilliant, you know, episode by episode um, sense of each of the characters, each of their journeys, all all whilst it not being kind of well that, that their episode's done so we don't see any more of them kind of thing yeah i've really enjoyed it so far cool um i would also mention buffy the vampire slayer which okay the first season you could argue, argue is slightly less of an ensemble piece but by the time you get into season two it's like every single character there even the villains mm-hmm. they've all got important slices of story to deliver yeah absolutely Um, I'll name one more, which actually didn't start off as an ensemble piece and has become one um, increasingly is My Hero Academia, where you do have a very clear sort of main character in the form of uh, Deku. But um, it's one of those cases where you start off thinking, oh, this is the hero's journey. Young boy gets, you know, inherits something amazing and goes out on an adventure. And then suddenly you realise, oh, shit, this is the heroine's journey instead. As it becomes increasingly an ensemble piece with all of these other characters who are all dynamic and all add something to it. Um, And I've really, really been enjoying that development. So you can actually, and it's very hard to do, but you can actually kind of build something which starts off with really one perspective and then it kind of flourishes. But that needs to be a longer running series and stuff like that, really. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um... So yeah, I, I think that we'll wrap it up there, but I'm I'm really interested to know what other people think, you know, um, whether other pe- what some of our listeners are writing ensemble pieces, whether they're thinking about writing ensemble pieces, and I really hope we haven't put you off. I hope that we've actually <laughs> kind of put you up to the challenge. Um, and, you know, certainly I've written ensemble pieces, Jules, has a lot of experience with juggling a lot of characters. I mean, do you think you'd ever write an ensemble ensemble piece, Jules? Oh, I've got something planned. I've got a, <laughs> I have I've got a dark fantasy cosmic horror type thing planned. It's just it's its moment has not rolled round. Soon it will slouch towards Bethlehem and then you will see <laughs> the depths of my writerly depravity. <laughs> That whole phrase was just full of twists and twists and turns. It's just like <laughs> I have a dark fantasy pause series planned, and I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, um, I breathe again. <laughs> um, so yes, I, I absolutely would. I think it would be um, a really good fun. It's just I've largely been writing in genres where either the publisher said no, we want you to keep it to one perspective, yeah. or I've been writing in genres where it's best to start off keeping it to one perspective. And looking at what I'm doing at the moment, the storytelling mode has been better to stick with one perspective per book. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it has worked, but I, I can sort of like see or sort of see you stretching a little bit, like maybe you'll just add a tiny little bit here, tiny bit there, and write a whole novella from their point of view. Um, I can't I can't help myself. No, you can't. And, <laughs> I, I love, and I love it. I love it. 
Um, so yeah, we'll say thanks very much for listening, guys. We'll love to hear from you. Um, what are some of your favourite ensemble pieces? Do you agree with us? Do you disagree with us? As always, we are keen to learn, to re- reconsider our points of view, um, and to discover more, so do get in touch. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. Um, and this week, Jules, you've got one for us. Yes, um, I am going to recommend... A Day of Fallen Night by Samantha Shannon. This is not a. This is not an. E- it comes out in February, so uh, I think it's sort of twenty first of February it launches. Mm-hmm. It's a big book. This is not a light undertaking. And <laughs> personally, I found the first few chapters quite difficult to get into because it has to set up quite a lot of world building and stuff mm-hmm. uh, to begin with. Even if you've read The Priory of the Orange Tree, which is set in the same universe. Um, having said that. It's so rewarding once you get about, I mean, they're they're short chapters, five or six chapters in, and it's established its four sort of main point of view characters. Mm. Um, It's a really rewarding story. And you are following essentially three different stories, all set happening at the same time, all following the same plot. Mm. um, And it pays off really well. And it is... You start off sort of in the south with uh, Tuniva Mellon, who is a 50-year-old, clearly menopausal woman, who is um, she? She's one of the sis- one of the sisters of the Priory of the Orange Tree, who are kind of warrior mages, mm-hmm. um, and it's her and her her lover, um, whose name is now es- uh, I want to say Esbar. Esbar, her her lover is sort of the the next prioress. Um, and they know that something's going to happen. The whole point of the Priory is that they're formed to keep the skills alive that will defend the world against the incursion of worms. And when I say worm, I obviously mean the dragon worm. I don't mean little, little wiggly earthworms. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I mean, proper Western dragons with fire, flying nuclear bomb type things. Um, in another part of the world, you, you've got... Uh, uh, Glorian, who is the 15-year-old queen in waiting of of that particular country, um, and she's grappling with the fact that she's got a very limited destiny ahead of her. She has to marry, have a have an heir, because she is part of this supposed unbroken chain that keeps the the the, the most dread dragon worm creature down. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of politics and stuff around that and then over in the east with the proper eastern dragons you have a god singer who whose name has gone out of my head which is really embarrassing there's a lot of names i'm fine when i'm reading it but um who suddenly discovers that actually she isn't just a god singer working on a a mountain in what is basically fantasy tibet she's actually the heir to a throne um and is tossed into like the the political snake pit of of this eastern court and all of their stories are really really important the overall plot of basically helping the human race survive in the face of what are essentially natural disasters personified in time for the balance to be re-established on this world Um, it's amazingly detailed it's very very queer which is um and the characters are really multi-layered and interesting and it's just it's one hell of a book. I recommend this. I think in some ways it's even better than The Priory of the Orange Tree, and that's a doorstopper as well. Mm. 
Um, if you're looking for something huge and immersive to just get lost in, absolutely recommend this book. If you're more in a cosy fantasy mo mood, then this slow burn political fantasy probably isn't going to be right now. <laughs> but it could be used as a weapon. <laughs> it could be used as a weapon. It probably should be. <laughs> it is really, really good. And Samantha Shannon always gives you um, varying perspectives on things that are happening. So she'll never club you over the head like that absolutely appalling book I read last year that only had one one very very narrow black and white perspective and clearly was just the author sort of grinding away at her own particular issues <laughs> <laughs> i shall not mention it i get angry every time i think of it um but yeah basically this is this is this is really interesting thought-provoking i highly recommend it again you might want to take a week off work because yeah. <laughs> it, it's a lot <laughs> And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.